Dear Father, throughout this week we may have been too busy to have spent time with you. We may have let other things get in our way. We may not have breathed in your word. We may not have inhaled all week. We may not have breathed out, exhaled in prayer back to you. But your word is life to us. And as we've heard it this morning, we hear your practicality of knowing our sin. And we know of your love and grace and being there for us, protecting us and guiding us and always being with us. As we're here this morning, I just ask, Lord, that you would help us to breathe in and breathe out. That we may understand you better this day. And that we may make it our habit to be in your word, to read it, to memorize it, to take it in, to live by it. And that we may make it our habit as well to pray for ourselves, our families, those around us. Lord, we have a number of folks in our body who are hurting, who've had surgeries and are pending surgeries and are recovering and awaiting recovery. And we just pray for them, Lord. We ask your strength and your peace and your mercy to be with them. And we're thankful for this time. We're thankful for this body of believers that have gathered no matter what the busyness has been we're here now lord please be with us in these few moments that we have together and it's in your name we pray amen so in uh, fourth of july 1776 in addition to approving the declaration of independence the new congress also appointed a committee of three men Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams to come up with an appropriate government seal to use with official documents. Adams described the ideas that each of them brought to the table in a letter to his wife. And he said, Dr. Franklin proposes a device for a seal with Moses lifting up his wand and dividing the Red Sea and Pharaoh in his chariot overwhelmed with the waters. And with this motto, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Mr. Jefferson proposed the children of Israel in the wilderness, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And on the other side, Hengist and Horsa, the Saxon chiefs from whom we claim the honor of being descended and in whose political principles and form of government we have assumed. Well, I proposed the choice of Hercules as engraved by Gribelin in some editions of Lord Shaftesbury's works, the hero resting on his club with virtue pointing to her rugged mountain on one hand and persuading him to ascend. Sloth, glancing at her flowery paths of pleasure, wantonly reclining on the ground, displaying the charms both of her eloquence and person to seduce him into vice. But this is too complicated a group for a seal or a medal, and it is not original. Now, here you can see what this committee actually submitted as an, in an artist's rendering of their idea, a little taken from each of their positions. And in mid-August of 1776, they presented it, and it was tabled with no action taken. And over the next six years, two more committees were formed and submitted designs that were also cast aside. Here's the second committee. And then Congress chose Secretary of the Continental Congress, Charles Thompson, to submit a design. And he combined the aspects of the previous submittals. And in June 1782, the day it was submitted, his design with the bald eagle was approved. And, of course, it is still used today as our great seal of the United States. But history has a way of interpreting anew sometimes based on obscure or incomplete pieces of information. There is actually a notion that Benjamin Franklin preferred the turkey as a national symbol of the United States over the bald eagle, and that he, this uh, idea was advanced in an article in the New Yorker magazine just before Thanksgiving in November of 1962. 
Now, this cover illustration from that magazine with the turkey instead of the bald eagle, there's a little clearer representation of it, was absolutely false. Although Franklin did say the following in an unpublished letter to his daughter, For my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen as the representative of our country. The context of the letter was a satire against an organization called the Society of Cincinnati, having nothing to do with the city because the city hadn't been established yet, which was using an eagle in its seal. And that eagle looked more like a turkey than an eagle. But Franklin never advanced the idea of a turkey being our national symbol. He did find it useful in his experimentation with electricity. He used turkeys to test electric shock. (laughs) And he even wrote to Peter Collinson in 1751 that, quote, birds killed in this manner eat uncommonly tender. Now, while we're not going to consider today the role of a turkey versus the bald eagle as our national symbol, our text has a reference to an eagle. And we need to recognize that just as this myth of Franklin wanting our national symbol to be a turkey instead of an eagle, just as that myth can guide our perception of history, we often bring our own conceptions of what eagles are like and what they may or may not do to bear in some way in our own interpretation of Scripture when it mentions eagles. And that can be incredibly important because the character of God is often figuratively referred to with things that we can see and know. Lambs, lions, eagle wings, etc. And our own understanding might enhance or even obstruct our understanding of how God's character acts toward his people. Now as we turn to Deuteronomy 32, chapter 32, verses 10 through 11 this morning, we're going to see that this passage occurs in a section of Scripture which has been termed the Song of Moses. And you heard that read this morning. And it was a song that was being sung as a witness against the people. Now, Deuteronomy, the title of that book, comes from the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and basically means second law or repetition of the law. Moses is not going into the promised land because of his own sin. And he has gathered a nation, and he repeats much of what has been recorded as law throughout the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The generation that had originally received the law at Mount Sinai has largely died out. And the new generation of leaders and family heads need to affirm their own commitment to this covenant of God. And the message and context of the book of Deuteronomy provides important information for both the entire Song of Moses in chapter 32 and the specific verses that we consider today. Now, if we were to sit down and read all of Deuteronomy, which is not a bad idea, we would read how Moses goes through the good and bad points of what the nation has done in the 40 years that they have been on this journey. He repeats the laws and the blessings that come from obedience, and the curses that come from disobedience. If we pick up the story in chapter 31, verse 19, we see how God has just told Moses, and we heard this read, that the people will sin and abandon him, and then he tells Moses, write down this song. It will be a witness for me against the Israelites. In 31.22, Moses writes down the song, and in verse 30, he recites and sings the song to the people. So this song, which you may have titled in your Bible, the Song of Moses, it's actually God's words given to the people to describe what he has done for them, why he has done it, and what he will do in the future, or how his character acts toward his people. In 32, 46 through 47, Moses has completed reciting this song, and he sums it up with this. Take to heart all these words I am giving as a warning in you today, so that you may command your children to carefully follow all the words of this law, for they are not meaningless words to you, they are your life. Our God is not a changing God. His actions recorded in the scriptures are still things he chooses to do because they are reflections of his never-changing character. 
Hebrews 13.8, I'm sure many of you have memorized, tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have the opportunity this morning to see in these verses how God's character acts toward his people in the past, the present, and the future. And as we look to this never-changing story of the interactions of God with his people, what I want to do is I want to consider three examples that are still true for us today of this interaction of God. So let's look at 32, verses 10 through 11. Here what we will find is what God does for Israel, how his character acts toward his people, and then we want to bring those actions forward and how they work for us today. Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 and 11. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. So the first thing we want to observe on how God's character acts toward his people is that he seeks us and saves us. He found him. Now, Maybe as silly as it may sound, the whole point of saying you found something is to convey that there was something missing, something lost. You established some value for the item. It isn't where it is supposed to be, and you began looking for it. Perhaps it's your car keys, your homework, your phone, your pet, maybe even a member of your family. Depending upon the value, you will spend as much time and effort as you have available in the search. A classmate of mine from high school is searching. She has been searching for her son, a young man with a number of psychological and mental disabilities, and she's been searching for many years. Every day she travels about, she posts flyers, talks to people, follows up on leads, and returns home, typically with no more information than she had at the beginning of the day. But she continues her effort. She searches. And here in these verses, we see God in search mode. The scriptures are filled with the idea of seeking. Now, most notably, the image frequently involves sheep and a shepherd. Isaiah calls us lost sheep that have gone astray. Psalm 23 sings of a contented sheep that has been found. Zechariah asserts that God himself will come as the one true shepherd and rescue the sheep. Consider for a moment, are you being sought? And if so, by whom? The simple reality is that the prince of this world, our adversary, that angel of light, the great deceiver, doesn't really need to search for the unbeliever. He only had to seek one time. He sought out Adam and Eve in the garden and appealed to their pride in such a way that they entered into sin and rebellion against God. As R.C. Sproul comments, the essence of sin is minimizing God and making much of self. In other words, the essence of sin is pride. And from that moment on, Satan no longer needed to seek us. We enter our lives already claimed by him, and bound in chains of sinful servitude to follow his prideful lead. And we have no desire to be found. As Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 11, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. But God is a seeking God. In fact, he is the only one that seeks for you. He seeks for you despite your total lack of merit totally based on his choice and his decision. And he seeks us despite our allegiance to our father, Satan. Look at Christ's words in John chapter 8, verses 42 through 44. John 8, 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. And while Satan is like a lion prowling about, seeking whom he may devour, he knows where you are. He knows where to find you. But God seeks you out. And here in verse 10, 
we see how God has sought out Israel in the midst of a hopeless wilderness. He found him, Israel, somewhere that was desolate, lonely, separated from God, a howling wasteland. But let's back up in time for a minute from this moment of seeking. Scripture tells us that God sought out Abram, as Joshua notes, a worshiper of other gods, in Joshua 24.2, and he began a new work, a new people, a promise of a chosen people that would come from all nations, beginning with this undeserving chosen people of a nation that would be called Israel. Now, where else does he seek? He sought out Ishmael and his mother Hagar in the wilderness and preserved them from death and provides a promise to Ishmael to be the father of many nations. He seeks Jacob in his exile that resulted from Jacob's own deceptions toward his brother Esau. He seeks Joseph in an Egyptian prison, Moses in his exile because of murder. The various judges he raises up before Israel demands a king. And then he seeks out his choice for their greatest king a small shepherd boy that was ignored by his father for consideration by Samuel the prophet to be anointed as the chosen king. He then sinks out, seeks out the prophets that call for the kings and the people to repent. He seeks out an evil pagan empire to bring his judgment on the nation of Israel. He seeks out the remnant of Israel to return from 70 years of exile. And then he pauses and waits. And the nation waits. They hear the words of Ezekiel thirty-four sixteen and wait for them to come true. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. After 400 years of silence, his ultimate act of seeking, of seeking you out in obedience and faithfulness, begins in a small village in the hamlet of Bethlehem and continues throughout a perfect sinless life to end on a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. Paul sings of this seeking in Philippians chapter 2 in verses 5 through 11 where he says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Christ affirmed his mission of seeking in Luke 19:10 where he calls out to the people for the son of God or for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost, saving the lost. That's implicit in our text is this idea of salvation. He seeks out Israel in the wilderness that would initially seem to refer to the wilderness that they've been wandering in the last 40 years, a wilderness in which God continually cared for them. I believe we need to look a little further back than that because God did not find Israel in that wilderness. He led them to it, through it, and out of it. The Hebrew word behind this wilderness idea literally means in an empty, howling wasteland. And the word howling is derived from a verbal root that typically refers to the wailing of mourners. If we consider the plight of the nation in their servitude in Egypt, from which they were sounding forth their cries for deliverance, perhaps we can find that this slavery to a pagan pharaoh is like a wilderness. God heard their cries for deliverance, and he sends Moses to accomplish his promises for his glory because he cares for this people. And from this, he delivers, he saves them and leads them to the promised land. And they would recall those words in Exodus 19. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I'm sure you're wondering when eagles would come back into the conversation. There's more to come. 
In other words, God declares your exit from Egypt was only by my intervention, which was as miraculous and wonderful as if you'd flown out of Egypt, all two million of you, on the wings of an eagle. Now, indeed, at each of the seeking moments that I've mentioned, God is at work in saving those that he has sought, delivering our ultimate salvation through the seeking accomplished by Christ in fulfilling the will of the Father. Apostle Paul noted about himself in 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 16, one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Fulfilling the will of the Father. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, toward his certain death on a cross, for the joy established for him from the very beginning. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this, that it is the cross that really does this thing that sets us free and gives us our salvation. This is absolutely vital. The death of our Lord upon the cross was no accident. It was not the greatest tragedy of all time, and neither is it something that you or I must imitate. But the whole of the New Testament says that this event was not something to be regretted. It is not something to be explained away, nor is it something to be kept out of sight or hidden. As Paul says in Galatians, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Put that in the center. Place it in the front. Proclaim it above all else. The apostles didn't preach Christ's example. They didn't glory in his words. They preached his death on the cross and what that event meant. It is the heart and center of the Christian gospel. Jesus made it clear to us that the cross was necessary. In Matthew 16:21, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. And even in the transfiguration, Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, the prophets, they talk with Christ about this same thing. This is actually Transfiguration Sunday. I don't know whether you knew that or not if you're into liturgical stuff. But they said to him, they appeared in glory and were speaking of his death, what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the whole of the New Testament is proclaiming the blood of Christ the death of Christ upon the cross on Calvary. It is the heart, the center of our message, the good news of salvation. This sending God is doing so right now. He seeks and places his message of salvation, his cross, directly in your view. His wondrous cross, his blood, his atonement, his only way. You can't avoid it. You can't go around it. You can't ignore it. You can reject it and remain condemned and unsaved. I want to make it clear to each of us this morning, you are hearing this gospel. Jesus is God. He lived a perfect life. He died for your sins. He paid the price that you cannot pay. He was buried, but that tomb is empty because he rose from the dead to rule and reign forever as the king of all of heaven and earth. And he told us the only way, the only truth, the only life is him. But you have to believe this gospel. You have to accept the reality of your sin and accept his forgiveness and turn from that sin to repent and turn fully to him in faith. And there is no better time than now. And I urge you to heed that call. Okay, so next slide. If we've accepted this offer of salvation, the journey is not complete. It's only begun. We need instruction, guidance, and strength to move forward. And as we come to our second point in the verse, it is that God schools us 
and sanctifies us. He schools us and sanctifies us. Again, in verse 10, it says, He encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. I think you could visualize a loving parent surrounding his child in strong arms, caring, providing, teaching, protecting, doing everything possible to ensure this child will walk a straight path to a goal of maturity and wisdom, toward a goal of sanctification. In the nation of Israel's experience, God has been instructing and leading them. And Moses has just spent the book of Deuteronomy reminding them of this instruction. The law had been given to them. The law that revealed God to them in all his holiness, the law that permitted them to experience him, that as the Apostle Paul would later say, it tutored them, it schooled them in how to walk. And in Romans 3.2, when Paul is speaking about the benefits that have been given to the Jews by nature of being the Jewish nation, he said, considerable benefit in every way. First, they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. Scripture repeatedly captures this need for instruction and a desire for God's instruction. Nehemiah 9.20 tells us, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Now, Terry's recently finished taking us through Psalm 119, and God's instructions to the people are saturating that psalm. Nearly every verse, 174 of the 176 verses, contains one of eight words for God's revelation. Instruction, decree, precept, statute, command, judgment, promise, and word. And all of them are intended for one thing, to lead us into God's shared glory. Psalm 32, 8, where God says, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give you counsel. I, I greatly enjoy the opportunities that we have with our children and our grandchildren when they sometimes present to us the opportunity that they ask for advice or they seek our opinion. Uh, they might not follow the advice, but they at least recognize the need to ask. And God teaches us as well. And we find in this verse how God's character toward his people is demonstrated in his instructions to them, his words to them. These words are passed to us in the scriptures, and we firmly believe that what we are holding in our hands this morning, these scriptures, is indeed an accurate rendition of God's word. But words are subject to interpretation and explanations of different kinds. And we sometimes bring to those words an inaccurate piece of information which can totally derail the instruction being provided. There are those that think highly of Christ. They seek his moral and ethical teachings, such as the Sermon on the Mount, and they think this is the greatest thing that Christ contributed to man. And Thomas Jefferson was of such a mind. To the extent of which he felt that all of the supernatural and miraculous items recorded in the Gospels were untrue and added by later generations to the text. So he actually took a razor to the New Testament and he cut out and pasted together an 86-page document, which you would see on the screen, but you can't see it, an 86-page document he called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. So he cut and pasted, taking out anything that was miraculous or supernatural. And it's reported that he found this to be a great comfort. But we need to understand how he totally missed the reality of salvation. Although he considered himself a Christian, stating in a letter to Benjamin Rush, I am a Christian in the only sense that Jesus wished anyone to be. I'm sincerely attached to his doctrines in preference to all others. And he ascribed to himself every human excellence, oh, there it is, and believing he never claimed any other. His Jesus, Thomas Jefferson's Jesus, was merely a human. And he lies dead in a tomb because the resurrection was left on the cutting room floor. I offer this to you. Nobody has ever been saved or ever will be through the words or just the simple teachings of Christ. Nobody. 
Salvation only comes through his death on the cross. God could have certainly snapped his fingers, figuratively, and by doing so, excuse and forgive all sins, because he is all-powerful. But that would violate his justice. Sin had to be punished in order for justice to be satisfied. So he did what only he could do. He came. He lived that perfect life. He gave himself on the cross as the payment for that justice. He substituted his perfect righteousness for our infinite sinfulness. Perfect justice and perfect grace only meet on the cross. And then he validated this exchange by raising Christ from the grave so that we might know him in an eternal, perfect relationship. The jailer called out to Paul and Silas in Acts 16.29, What must I do to be saved? And they answered simply in verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, the heart and center of the Christian message is the cross. You've heard that three times now. The heart and center is the cross. It is unthinkable to preach anything other than the cross. The primary thing is not the teaching of the Lord, which if you only preach things like the Sermon on the Mount, you're actually preaching condemnation because nobody can do them. Paul doesn't say, God forbid that I should glory save in the Sermon on the Mount. God forbid that I should glory in the ethical teachings and example of Christ. I glory in the cross. C.S. Lewis once commented in his book, Mere Christianity, on those that rejected the deity of Christ and held such beliefs as Jefferson. A man who was merely a man, I'm sure you've heard this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There's a reason and goal behind this instruction. It's the idea and process of our sanctification. We are made each day a little more in the image of Christ. Through our living in Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And Charles Spurgeon reminds us that this is necessary. God will always sanctify you before he sends you, he says. The Father set aside the twelve disciples and made them holy by the truth. We listened to that in John. As they related to Jesus the truth, the disciples were refined by that truth and were prepared to be sent out to preach the gospel. Jesus challenged their ambitions, chastised their lack of faith, refuted Satan's influence, and denounced their pride. And when he had finished preparing them, the disciples were sent out in such power that the world was never the same again. The Spirit teaches us things. He does stuff. He inspires. He guides. He leads. He grieves. He convicts us of sin. But chiefly in the New Testament, what we see the role of the Spirit is to apply the work of Christ to believers. The Holy Spirit is always at work with us. But some might only see him as a comforter if they read John fourteen sixteen, where it says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, comforter, helper to be with you forever. Different translations have that, like I say, comforter, helper, counselor, the Greek word is parakletos. It includes the prefix para, which means alongside, and the root kletos, which means to call. It's someone that is called to stand alongside another. This was actually applied typically to the family attorney that was always on retainer to come immediately to assist in the struggle. And 
counselor or helper would then be closer to the meaning of parakletos. And if your translation says comforter, take comfort. Because the King James translators, as they were looking at this word, the Latin Vulgate, having the word comfort, actually is translated to mean with strength. This isn't coming up and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I hope you feel better. This is standing alongside of you in strength in the battle. Because this spirit, this parakletos, battles alongside us in this sanctification journey. He encircles us. Look at the verse again. He encircles us. He guards us. He protects us like you protect the pupil of your eye. When I was in college, I spent three weeks in this survival training. And at the end of the three weeks, I put my contact lenses back in. They were hard contact lenses, not the nice soft ones that you can do all sorts of things with. These were the pieces of glass in your eye, okay? And I went and played golf with my dad in Vail, Colorado, and we got back home to the Grand Junction area. And the next day, I couldn't open my eyes because it felt like I had sandpaper in them. I had damaged the cornea of my eyes. I spent two days in the hospital wondering what my nurses looked like. I knew what they sounded like, but I had no idea what they looked like probably good. It was VA hospital. And um, they put salve in there and everything, and my eyes got better. But I had damaged my eye. I'd hurt the pupil of my eye. And it it's not something you want to go through. You guard. Things. If you guard something like you guard your the pupil of your eye, You're really after. And that's the picture here we have of what God is doing. The Holy Spirit is protecting us like the pupil of our eye. And He will complete the good work of sanctification that He began in us. In some sense, when Jesus told the disciples to wait for the Spirit, He was reminding them of the characteristics of the Spirit that would be brought to bear on them. We heard Psalms 25 this morning over here during the song that Carol read, Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Spurgeon's point of our sanctification leading to being sent is where we go in our next point, which ties actually with our stated purpose of ministry this year to be steadfast. And here in verse 11 we read, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. God steadies us and sends us. He steadies us and sends us. One of the pleasures of being a dad is teaching your children how to do something, like riding a bicycle. There is that total trust they place in you and in the strength of your feet and your hands as you walk, then run alongside them as they take those first turns of the pedals with no more training wheels. And then there's that feeling of dread that you have that when they you let go and they continue down the driveway without you and hopefully they come to a stop before the intersection and don't crash. But then they start riding on their own. And with only the memory of your supporting arms around them, And you watch them move forward in life. And we look at the picture being painted here in verse 11, where God is describing his actions toward the people with images of the watch care of the adult eagle over its young as they begin to fledge and learn to fly. And behind that care, we can find his desire for us to move forward and accomplish his purposes for us in life as he sends us to proclaim his message. I had the opportunity to speak at my graduation from seminary many years ago, and I selected verse 11 as my subject. And indeed, if you research commentaries and sermons galore, you're going to fall into the line of thinking that I had at that time of how stirring up the nest was a description of the eagle doing things to push the young eagles out of the nest, tear up the little cushions, make it all prickly and everything, so it's not fun to sit there and the eagles will then jump out, okay? And so, uh, in my own effort, I talked about how my fellow graduates and I were being sent out from our comfortable academic home into a potentially hostile world. I missed the real point. 
And I want to consider this morning from a slightly different perspective. Eagles add to their nest each year. They keep coming back every year, and sometimes those branches could be nearly three feet long. Now, we always, when we think of eagles, what kind of eagle do we think of? Bald eagle, right? Do bald eagles live in Egypt, Palestine, Sinai? No. They're native to North America. That's why they're on our great seal. Okay, but the eagles that Moses was seeing was probably like the golden eagle or the imperial eagle. Very large eagles, just like the bald eagle. So because we think bald eagle, we'll talk bald eagle this morning, okay? The world record nest for a bald eagle is in St. Petersburg, Florida. It's nearly nine and a half feet in diameter and over 20 feet high, top to bottom. It's estimated to weigh about three tons. Now, just the top part of that is the cushioned environment where the young eagles are continually fed until they fledge at about 10 to 14 weeks. And the adults begin to entice them to hop around the nest into nearby branches. It's actually called branching. And they're exercising their wings in preparation for flight. They usually do this by dangling the food on a branch over here outside the nest. They don't bring it into the nest anymore. And so the young eagles want to go out and get the food, right? It's kind of like putting a bunch of pizzas in the middle of a group of teenagers. That stops them from whatever they're doing, and they come in. But even after the young eagles begin to fly, the adults will continue to feed them for several months to ensure that they are ready to fly and hunt and survive. That's different than kicking them out of the nest. So contrary to my views of stirring the nest through the tearing up the nest, I could find no actual observations from ornithologists or other researchers of that kind of behavior. None. So what is Moses talking about? How do we understand this terminology of stirring up the nest, and how is it telling us about how God's character treats Israel and us? Well, there's a complex evaluation of the specific Hebrew words, grammar, and structure of these verses, and I found that interesting. I'm sure Keith would as well, and, but it's more than what we need this morning. But the commentator reached this conclusion. This speaks about God's loving care for his people of Israel, Verse 11 starts with a picture of an eagle. This eagle cares for his young and hovers over them. In the same way, God himself spread his wings over his people, sheltering them under his protection. In the face of enemies and danger, God took Israel, figuratively put them on his wings, and lifted them away from danger. And the verb tense used here is a future tense, which means these actions, this stirring up is ongoing. It's incomplete. It's open-ended. Think about how Scripture talks about wings. Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you are not willing Psalm 17:8 Protect me as the pupil of your eye hide me in the shadow of your wings. Isaiah 31:5 Like hovering birds so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem by protecting it he will rescue it by sparing it he will deliver it. And Psalm 91:4 He will cover you with his feathers you will take refuge under his wings his faithfulness will be a protective shield. The CSB translation renders verse 11 in this way. He watches over his nest like an eagle and hovers over his young. He spreads his wings, catches him, and lifts him up on his pinions. When you consider the poetry that's demonstrated in verse 11, how it reflects back into verse 10, and see the parallels in the construction, following on the heels of the care demonstrated by God, in his care toward Israel in verse 10, we see the nurture and care demonstrated by the eagles toward their offspring in light of them moving forward to maturation. Eagles want to soar in the heavens, successfully hunt for their food, and begin the cycle of creating a new generation of eagles. The fledging eagles are urged to go out. Incidentally, fledging eagles are basically the same size as the adult eagle. They're not little bitty chicks. They're 
big birds, okay? The fledging eagles are urged to go out. They are sent. And through that sending, they will achieve the sender's goal. And so we need to consider, are we sent? No, that eagle protects its young with a simple goal in mind. They need to grow, to fly, to hunt, to do eagle things. And one of those things is the conception and rearing of another generation of eagles. In the same way, we as believers, as little Christs, which is one meaning behind the term Christian, we need to grow, we need to go out, we need to seek, and we need to do Christ things. And what has he commanded us to do? To spread his good news, his gospel, his message. His message of redemption and salvation and reconciliation and peace and hope. We are to proclaim the reality of this seeking, of this salvation, this schooling, this sanctification, and do it with the steadiness imparted through God's constant care and protection. Listen how Scripture describes this. In First Chronicles 16.23, Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim His salvation from day to day. Psalm 40.10, I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. Psalm 71.15, my mouth will tell about your righteousness and your salvation all day long, though I cannot sum them up. Matthew 24.14, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Luke 3, 6, quoting Isaiah, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. 2 Corinthians, but thanks be to God, who always puts us on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of his knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, on the, throne the Lamb. Behold, Revelations twenty two seventeen. Behold the Spirit and the Bride, that's us, the church, the Bride, say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. Consider what Jesus is saying to his disciples in Matthew twenty eight nineteen, the Great Commission. Go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go. It's an imperative. It's a command. This is not a you ought to kind of idea. Jesus sends us out. And what is the therefore, therefore? He's been given all authority. And it is on that authority that he commands us to go. He does this alongside the promise that we are not alone. He is always with us. The Spirit is always in us. He shares this with us. John Piper commented, What if we discovered that the beauty of God turns out to be the kind that comes to a climax in being shared for his glory? That does not mean to get glory which he doesn't already have, but rather to display and vindicate and communicate his glory for the everlasting enjoyment of his people. And they will receive him as their supreme treasure. He has sought us. He has saved us. 
He has schooled us. He has sanctified us. And now as he steadies us, as our mission statement this year talks about being steadfast, he steadies us and sends us with the privilege of proclaiming his message, his good news. Are we disobedient? Are we eagles that won't fly? Do we just fall to the ground and languish there hoping for his soon return so we don't have to do anything more? He set the stage for your participation. In his strength and love, you can be part of the greatest thing that can happen to each and every person you encounter, their salvation. He is the one that saves. But he commands you to be the bearer of and proclaimer of that message of salvation. Spurgeon says, wait, there's more. God caused us to be born again. He made us a new creation, new creatures. He adopted us as his children. He brought us into a new family with a new father, brothers, sisters, a new inheritance, a new home. This world is not our home. My citizenship and your citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. And then God gave his Holy Spirit to encourage us to guide us and to guarantee that what Jesus has promised to us will, in fact, pass. The next generation of believers is waiting for your obedience, your love, your compassion, your sharing of what God has accomplished for you and for them. And we have seen how God sought out and saved Israel, and so he does for us now. We have seen how God schooled and instructed and guided Israel, and journeyed them toward being his holy people, his sanctified people. And so he does for us. And he embraced them. He guarded them. He strengthened them. He steadied them with the purpose of being a light to the nations. And so he steadies us with his spirit and sends us to proclaim his message. There's another Luke 24, verses 45 through 49. There it is. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, this is what is written. This is the message we need to give. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Father, I just ask that... You would be with us. You sought us when we didn't deserve it in any way, shape, or form. With no merit of our own, you came to us. You did everything necessary for our salvation. There's nothing we could do. Our works are nothing before you, not even as good as a filthy rag. You could have done a lot of different things, but you put the cross in front of us, Lord. The cross is the absolute picture of our sinfulness. It's the absolute picture of your love. The world hates the cross, Lord. May we adore it. May we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Father, be with us now. Walk with us through this week. Let us be eagles that soar and not eagles that walk. In your name we pray. Amen.